Well, welcome to our fourth week of Church Online. And I uh, just want you to know that as a church, we're continuing to pray for you and also for all of our uh, people in healthcare. We're praying for you and we are so grateful for the work that you're doing during this season. Um, obviously, it's strange not being able to be together, but um, gathering together online and joining our hearts in a passage of scripture together is one way that we can continue to be community in a season where we're apart. So just know we're praying for you and thinking about you and miss being together. You know, this week I decided to teach out of a text about Palm Sunday, the, the triumphal entry, because that, that's where we're at this weekend. And it's in a season of chaos, it can be helpful to ground ourselves in a calendar. I heard somebody this week post on Facebook, uh, happy 437th day of March. And I thought, man, it feels like it, doesn't it? That these days just seem like they've been disorienting and it's a chaotic season. And in those moments, it can be helpful to remember that we find ourselves in a sacred landscape, that we are moving towards Easter still, and that today we get the chance to celebrate Palm Sunday together. See, Palm Sunday is one of those days on the church calendar that stirs up all sorts of expectations, um, unmet expectations even. And life is full of expectations. I don't know if you've thought about that much. You probably have lately. I mean, we're in a season of unmet expectations, really. Um, think of it. What were you expecting this spring? I, I was expecting to watch baseball on opening day. And instead, I got a rerun of a celebrity softball game. That's, that's very different. Um, I was expecting to spend a few days at a beach house with my wife. Just my wife. Instead... I've got a house full of kids that were homeschooling. Very different. Uh, I expected to have dinner and hang out with friends. Instead, I'm yelling at my neighbors from my driveway. Uh, I expected to gather together with uh, thousands of people at Emmanuel Faith to celebrate the resurrection. And it turns out uh, we'll be celebrating on our couch. Unmet expectations all over the place right now. But as I've thought about that, I think life in so many ways is about expectations. And in some ways, it's about unmet expectations. I mean, think about it. As parents, we're constantly managing and shaping and reshaping our kids' expectations. By the way, I'm praying for you during this season. Good luck. Keep going. You've got this, parents. But I mean, life is full of them, right? That uh, when we graduate from high school, we expect to go to college. When we graduate from college, we expect to get a job. Uh, we expect that at some point we might fall in love and get married. We expect that we'll work a job and be able to retire and slow down a little bit. And one transition from the next is filled with these latent expectations. You know, I ran across a quote by a historian by the name of Daniel Burstein, and listen to what he writes in his book, The Image. He says this, we expect anything and everything. He's writing about Americans specifically. He says, we expect anything and everything. We expect con the contradictory and impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars that are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, be constantly on the move and ever, more, ever, ever the more neighborly. 
to go to church, the church of our choice, and yet feel its guiding power over us to revere God and to be God. Never to have, or never have people been more the masters of their own environment, yet, he writes, and listen to this, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. Which makes me think, is that being um, raised to the surface in our cultural moment? You see, it's nothing new to have unmet expectations. Like I said, Palm Sunday is going to remind us that expectation, unmet expectations are a part of reality in life. They're even a part of a reality of faith, of following God. See, if you have your Bible, will you open me with me to Luke chapter 19? We're going to look at the triumphal entry together today. It's an interesting um, story because it's recorded in all four Gospels. E- each Gospel writer acclu- includes his own account of this event. It was really, really important. And in many ways, the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem was like a tinderbox. I mean, it was just latent with expectation. The year was 29 AD. And as the Apostle Paul would write later, that the fullness of time had come. The people were ready for their Messiah. They were ready to welcome their conquering King. And in would ride Jesus on a donkey. Unexpected and unmet expectations inaugurating a kingdom that no one wanted and a king that would eventually be rejected. But here's the thing, here's the thing. And and I'd encourage you to write this down this morning if you're taking notes. It's that unmet expectations create an opportunity. Every single time you encounter an unmet expectation, just know it's an opportunity. It's either an opportunity for your frustration to build or, or for your faith to emerge. Unmet expectations are an opportunity for bitterness to start to grow in our soul and disappointment and doubt, or they are an invitation to say, God, I will trust you in the unknown, in the unexpected, and in the unwanted. When my expectations falter, God, I will choose to put my trust in you. See, I think Dallas Willard said it right when he said, reality is what we run into when we find out we are wrong. And disappointment with God or unmet expectations, you can frame it like that if it's helpful. Uh, Unmet expectations are simply an invitation to reimagine what's true and what's real. See, disappointment in God doesn't reveal a failure in God. It actually reveals a faulty view of God. And as followers of Jesus, it is so important that our faith be grounded in reality, in what actually is true, rather than in what we hope was true or what we wish were true, but what actually is true. So do any of these views of God sound familiar? The the God who makes everybody healthy. Wouldn't we love that in this season? The God who makes every business succeed. The God who always tells you exactly what to do. The God who always blesses financially. The God who always makes marriage marital bliss. The God who always prevents evil and pain and abuse. 
And see, if you've ever run into that view of God and realized it wasn't true, my guess is it was painful and it hurt. But it also presented with it an opportunity to reimagine what God is like and to put your faith in a true God rather than the God of our imagination. And that's exactly what the people are presented with on Palm Sunday. And so Palm Sunday becomes this almost a metaphor for us of who God actually is and who we would want him to be. And those two images collide, expectation and reality. And so if you have your Bible open, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, is where I'm going to begin reading. And listen to the way that Luke, the gospel writer, begins this section. He says this, And when he, meaning Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, just a quick time out, it's really interesting. The gospel writers tie those two places together. They weren't on the exact same part of the map. Bethany was about two miles away from Jerusalem. So you'll have to imagine that in your mind, that that's the place that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so he gathered quite the following there. I mean, you can imagine if you raise somebody from the dead, word's going to spread. And it did. He had a lot of disciples in Bethany that were going to now follow him to Jerusalem. Verse uh, 29, it said, When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and when, where, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever, ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why, you're, why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. Okay, quick time out. I don't suggest this in operating in our day and time right now. I wouldn't go to your neighbors and say, um, can I borrow your car? And if they ask you why, you just say, the Lord has need of it. This is a unique moment in time, not a principle to apply for all time. But it's an interesting story because the disciples model this radical obedience. I mean, they hear Jesus say this, it doesn't make a lot of sense to them, and they step into the moment. And they go and they do exactly what Jesus asked them to do. Verse 32. So these two were sent away and found it just as it had been told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need for it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, remember how I said this story is told in all of the Gospels? Well, in um, John's gospel, we have a little bit more detail, and so we do in Matthew's gospel as well. They tell us that this is a direct quote from uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. And in that prophecy, listen to what Zechariah the prophet wrote. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And if we were to take all of Zechariah's prophecy, here's what we would find. We would find that the prophesied king is going to come in and he's going to be victorious, but he's not going to be victorious through military might. He's going to be victorious through 
humble, sacrificial love. And see, for the nation of Israel, expecting their Messiah to come with military power, expecting their Messiah to be strong, expecting their Messiah to overthrow the Romans, they were extremely disappointed. Their expectations weren't met. I mean, Jesus is riding on a donkey. And certainly you can find some kings throughout the scriptures that rode on donkeys, but for the most part, you would have kings riding in chariots, riding with armies, riding in power and victorious and mighty. And Jesus turns all of that on its head. He's a humble king. A humble king is is an oxymoron. It's uh, jumbo shrimp. It's good grief. It's the sound of silence. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. But if you write this down, this is the first sort of um, hint that Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry aren't going to be what the nation of Israel expected. See, Jesus came as a humble servant, not as a prideful dictator. And that's who he was throughout his whole life. I mean, if you were to go and read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus gives this great invitation. He says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus was always found holding out invitation, not ultimatum. It was, come and follow me. I mean, to the rich young man, it was this invitation. Um, Give up everything and come and follow me. And if you choose not to, well, that's your decision. He was humble, gentle. I mean, pause for a moment and let, let that sink in. The God who created everything around us, who spoke it into existence with his very word out of nothing and who sustains it all and holds it all together is humble, the humble king. But if we can be honest, that's not always the God that we want, is it? I mean, it's certainly the God we want when he interacts with us, right? I mean, we want God to be humble when he interacts with us and kind and generous, but towards our enemies, we want the God who exacts justice. We want the God who rights wrongs. We want the God who stands in the gap for people that are being taken advantage of and abused. And we don't want a humble God oftentimes. I mean, it's reflected in the leaders we pick. I mean, just a a few weeks ago, it seems like forever ago, but a few weeks ago, I had tuned into the uh, primary debates, the presidential debates. We don't like humble leaders. We want brazen, outspoken audacious leaders. I mean, a humble leader can't get a word in, in a debate. And I think in so many ways, they just reflect what goes on in our heart. There was a study done back in 1954. They asked 10,000 adolescents, do you think you're important? 12% of them said yes. They did the same exact study in 1989. And what they found was that 77% of people said yes. Now, my guess is in our Instagram digital age, if they were to do that study today, it would be even higher. We don't like humility. We're, We're in a sense attracted to pride, but Jesus is humble. He's gentle. 
And here's why that's important, okay? And, and you just need to take that in for this in for just a moment. Don't miss this. Because Jesus enters our lives in the same way he entered Jerusalem. Humble, riding on a donkey, gentle, gentle. I mean, listen to the way that James, the brother of Jesus, puts it in James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom of God, the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is the God who says, lean in. I want to whisper, not shout. I, I want to whisper. I want you to get close. I want you to hear my heartbeat. I'm humble. I'm gentle. I'm kind. Can you receive me? Or do you want a God that's prideful? That's the question that's in front of the nation of Israel at the triumphal entry. And it's the question in front of us today. Will we take God as he is? Or will we try to fashion him in our image? Voltaire said it, I think, poignantly and well. God created us in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. So we see that there's this uh, invitation in front of us. Are we willing to receive the, the humble king, even though that may not be what our expectation is? Or are we going to hold on to this idea that God has to be prideful and do everything the way that we want him to? But the story continues and it starts to unearth another um, maybe misunderstanding of God that we hold on to and expectation that we have. In verse 36 of Luke chapter 20, or sorry, 19, listen to what Luke says. He says, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks along the road. Now, uh, we also have passages that talk about them putting down um, palm branches on the road. And these palm branches and these even putting their clothes down were done in order to give honor. It was a way actually of welcoming a king. See, you can go back and read in 2 Kings chapter 9, there's a King Jehu that they welcome with palm branches then. But palm branches were symbolic of, of joy. And in ancient times, they symbolized goodness and well-being and steadfastness and victory. But even more than that, they had history. See, um, uh, about 150 years before Jesus walks into Jerusalem, uh, Simon Maccabees and Judas Maccabees walked into Jerusalem also. And they were greeted by the Jewish people there with palm branches. In order to be these militaristic, messianic figures that would free them from the Romans, and so when people put their coats down and they put palm branches down in order to welcome Jesus, there's an expectation that's going along with this welcome. And here's the other thing you need to know, though. This is happening divinely at the exact time of the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, same thing. They used palm branches to uh, celebrate. And so they had these on hand. Now, the Feast of Booths celebrated the Israelites being taken out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. It was a sign of God's release, a sign of God's victory, a sign of freedom. And ironically, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. As we're going to see, though, the people just don't have eyes to see it. So Matthew, uh, actually, let's, let's stay in Luke for a few moments. Here's the way Luke continues in verse 37. As he, Jesus, was drawing near, 
already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were quiet, even the stones would cry out. See, um, these Pharisees are eventually going to be the people that I think turn these cheers into jeers. They're the ones that are going to turn the crowd on Jesus and point out, this isn't the king that you hoped for, and it's not the king that you wanted. But the people are not only using palm branches, which were symbolic of the welcome of a king. They were also quoting Psalm 118. And um, uh, Matthew will make this even more clear. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, he records this. The crowds went before him uh, and followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a, a portion of Psalm 118 that was read every single Passover. It was a Hillel Psalm. Hosanna. It means God saves, or it means God save us. See, it's either a declaration or a petition, depending on the context. And we're not exactly sure what these people mean it as. They probably mean it, God, you're going to save us, and we know how. You're going to overthrow the Romans, and you're going to give us the freedom that we desired, and you're going to fulfill all of our hopes and all of our dreams and everything that we wanted. And they're about to be really, really disappointed because this isn't what Jesus is intending to do. So you may want to write this down. See, and going along with expectation and reality, Jesus defeats our cosmic enemies, not our earthly adversaries. He defeats the powers of sin and death and evil. But he doesn't dethrone the Romans in that moment. But you need to capture that. That's why Jesus came, okay? We don't talk about that a whole lot in some of our churches, but Jesus came. Let me give you just a free, few passages of Scripture that draw this out for us. Um, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. John really clearly records, The Son of God came to defeat the power of the devil. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, over forces of evil in the, in the heavenly realms. And the Apostle Paul will write in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, and I'd encourage you, lean in and listen to this, because this is Jesus' intent and why he went to the cross. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. See, this is the battle that Jesus came to wage. And this is the war that Jesus came to win. When, the, when John sees Jesus coming in John, chapter, first, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we need to sit with this. This is the reason that Jesus came. And if we don't understand the severity of sin, the magnitude of his victory will never stand out to us. 
See, it's sin that we are freed from in the cross and resurrection. It's death defeated, sin conquered, and evil enveloped. That's what Jesus is doing in the cross. And in conquering sin, he not only provides a way for you and I to go to heaven, but he also provides a way for our humanity to be restored for who God created us originally to be, to be put on full display. That's why Jesus came, and that's the victory that Jesus is not only waging, but it's the victory that he's winning. He came to defeat our cosmic enemies of sin and death, not, not to defeat our temporal adversaries, our earthly adversaries. So I don't know if maybe you're expecting something from Jesus that He just didn't come to give. But if you're expecting him to be the forgiver of your sins, the restorer of your soul, the healing of your humanity, then he came to do that and he was victorious in providing that for you. And so we see that Jesus is a king, but not this political ruler, powerful king that they want. He's actually coming to fight a a bigger enemy, the cosmic powers of sin and death, not not our earthly adversaries. It might even be helpful for you to write down some earthly adversaries that you wish Jesus would just conquer because it might help us enter into the Jewish people's longing for a Messiah that would overthrow Rome. And so we've seen that um, Jesus, this uh, riding a donkey, we've seen the palms down and the Hosanna rise. And then we read in verse 41 of Luke 19. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. In the Greek, it's this word that carries with it like a loud sobbing, almost uncontrollable grief. It's a really interesting picture of a Messiah, that he's this weeping warrior, as it were. See, this weeping, it shows us something about Jesus. It shows us that he's compassionate, that he's invested, that he's empathetic, that, that, he, that he cares. He's not this God that's the Bette Midler God, God at a distance watching us. He's actually involved and he's hurting with us. That's who Jesus is. And it's what the scriptures want us to grapple with and they want us to see. See, instead of wiping out their enemies, he's wiping away his tears. See, you might want to write this down. This is where we often, our expectations and reality don't meet. See, Jesus enters our pain. He doesn't always eliminate our problems. He enters our pain, but he doesn't always eliminate our problems. And one of the greatest questions we as human beings have is, why does evil and suffering exist? I mean, they did a survey a few years back. Someone commissioned a a whole national survey to be done. And the survey was asking people one question. If you could ask God any question, what would it be? And the number one question that people asked was, why does evil and suffering exist? I mean, see, the atheist would want you to believe that evil and suffering disprove God. But that just simply isn't true. Evil and suffering don't disprove God. They just disprove that there's a God who prevents all evil and suffering. That's what it disproves. In many ways, this question, why does evil exist, has been considered the rock of atheism. 
The 18th century philosopher, Enlightenment philosopher David Hume put it like this. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both willing and able? Well then, why is there evil? See, essentially, he is saying, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, there shouldn't be any evil. But it's this picture of Jesus weeping that I think starts to give us at least some answers or points to some resolution that we might be able to hold on to. Let me give you a few things first. First, if Christianity and suffering and evil were incompatible, it never would have survived the first three centuries. You get that, right? That Christianity and Christians experienced a ton of evil. Like I said, the existence of evil and suffering doesn't disprove God. It just disproves a God that prevents all evil and suffering. Here's another interesting thing. The Bible never gives a direct answer for why there's evil and suffering in the world. It just simply states that there is. That we do have a cosmic enemy. uh, An enemy that would love to steal and kill and destroy. It's just a reality. But the answer the Bible gives for why evil and suffering is this picture of a God who enters in and who weeps with us and who loves us in the midst of it. See, the answer to this question is actually found in the life and death and burial and resurrection of, of Jesus. And see, I want you to hold on to this. And these are going to pop up on the screen. I want you to write these down. There's a few things that I want you to hold on to today from this weeping Savior. Number one is that whatever suffering you're going through, Jesus understands it. He understands it. He understands suffering firsthand. And the Apostle Paul wrote that he, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is a God who understands our suffering. But he doesn't just understand it, he enters into it. That's the second thing, he enters into it. And see, the incarnation isn't just a one-time event. It's something that God does on a continual basis. He is close to the broken-hearted. And see, oftentimes we want answers to our problem and our pain, but what Jesus gives us is his presence. He gives us his presence. Here's a third thing he does. He miraculously uses our suffering somehow to make us and shape us and turn us into the people of God that he's designed us to be. He uses every little thing in our life to weave it together and to somehow turn it for good. And then finally, here's what we're reminded of in the resurrection that we're going to point to next weekend. We are reminded that ultimately Jesus will heal all suffering. I love the way that Joni Erickson Tata put it. She says this, We ask less of this life because we know full well that more is coming in the next. The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and now. 
See, friends, the cross stands at the center point of history to declare that God loves you and that God is for you, to declare that God weeps with you and that he suffered on your behalf so that ultimately you and I might be redeemed. See, we might question God's plan and why he allows some of the things that he allows, but we never have to question God's motives. We know his heart and we know that he is good. And even though he doesn't eliminate every problem, he enters in and he weeps with us. This is the weeping Messiah, your savior. And so maybe your expectation today is, God, I wish you would step in and I wish you would solve this problem. But what if his answer is, I'm going to step in and I'm going to put my arm around you and I'm going to weep with you and I'm going to walk with you. And when you get weary, I will carry you because I am your God and I am with you and I am good. So we see our expectations are colliding with reality, or the Israelites were, and they do so in three ways, with a donkey, with a palm branch, and with a tear. Sort of symbolizing Jesus's humility, uh, symbolizing him coming to defeat cosmic enemies, and symbolizing him entering into our pain. And see, Luke finishes this section of scripture, and listen to what he writes. He says this, He says, and when he drew near to the city, he wept over it, verse 42, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. See, he wants to bring them peace, shalom, wholeness. He wants to weave back together their frayed parts, and he knows that the way to do that is through sacrificial love, but they're rejecting their Messiah. For verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's referencing what would happen to the temple in 70 AD, that the Romans would come in and would raise it, would absolutely level it. Not a stone was left on another, they would say. And he's saying, listen, all of this is happening because they didn't understand the moment that they were in. Their expectations actually blocked them. Oh, would you, oh, that you would have known this day or that you would have known the time of your visitation. And see, here's what I'd like you to write down as we begin to close our time together. It's that these moments of unmet expectations are actually moments where God calls our faith to arise, to to leap out of our hearts and onto the pages of our lives, that these would be the moments where we would say back to God, God, I trust you. And it's in these moments that he wants to turn the cubic zirconium of our faith into pure gold, as James would say. See, unmet expectations don't mean that God doesn't exist, or they don't mean that God doesn't exist. They simply mean the God that we thought existed doesn't. But a better God exists, a truer God exists, a God who looks like Jesus. 
And if you accept that, now you can become an apprentice of his, living in reality, worshiping the donkey-riding, weeping, crucified, risen Messiah. See, every single one of us with our lives will either do one of two things. We will either shout, crucify him. We don't want anything to do with the humble, cosmic, evil, defeating, weeping Jesus. Or we will take off our outer garments and we will lay down our palms and we will welcome him into our lives, just like they welcomed him into Jerusalem. See, I'm convinced of this, friends that this is a moment for us. Don't miss the moment of Jesus's visitation, of his presence. Respond to him. If you hear him stirring your heart, knocking on the door of your heart today, respond and welcome him in and bow at his feet. Maybe today you need to let go of some of your faulty expectations of God. And maybe the invitation is to receive something that's more beautiful and more true and that looks a lot more like Jesus. See, as we close our time together, I, I wanna invite you to do three things this week. And you can jot these down, three things this week. Would you be willing to voice your honest frustration or disappointment to God? Unmet expectations. Just maybe you write it down in a journal or you go on a, on a walk and you just pray. God, here's the ways that I feel like you've let me down. That's okay to say and voice that to him. I want, always want to be the kind of church community that has space for doubt. And then, what if you decided in the midst of those doubts to say, God, I believe that Jesus, you rose from the grave, and so I'm going to decide to trust you in the brokenness and in the fog and in the questions and in the unmet expectations. And then, and then, what if you prayed this prayer? God, I'm asking that you would plant kingdom seeds in my unmet expectations. God, do your work in my disappointment. Which means that we move forward in love. We move forward worshiping this Jesus who rode into Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. As he's riding into your life today, how will you welcome him? So your benediction comes out of Psalm 24, verses 9 through 10. It says this, Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And our worship team is going to lead us in singing one last song today. They're going to sing this song, Waymaker. And I would invite you to sing along. There's this line in the song, God, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when you don't meet my expectations, you're working. I'd invite you to sing along. And as you sing, ask Jesus to make it true in your heart. This is a God who can be trusted, even when it feels like he doesn't meet the expectations that we have for him. God bless you. I miss being together. I'm excited to gather together again sometime real soon. But God bless you as you continue to worship in your homes or at your computer or wherever you are today. We love you and we're praying for you. God bless. You.